and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz, and my guest today is Alan Gannett. He is the CEO and founder of TrackMaven, a marketing insights platform, and he's also the author of a book we're going to talk about today called The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. So, Alan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, man. So a big premise of the book is to kind of debunk the creativity myth that that you sit around and get this inspiration from a muse at some point in your life and and that in fact there's a science behind it. So you want to tell me uh, kind of your your it's really the big idea of the book I suppose. So you want to unpack that for us? So Creativity is one of those things that you know, we talk about a lot in our culture. It's on the cover of all these magazines. It's this big topic in boardrooms. And in Western culture, we have this notion of creativity as this like magical, mystical thing that you know strikes a few certain people each generation. And there's the Elon Musk and Steve Jobs of the world and the Mozarts and the J.K. Rowlings. But for the rest of us normies, we're just sort of left out in the cold. And um, you know, the thing that always bothered me is I'd always been someone who'd been a big reader of autobiographies and some of the literature around creativity. And, um, you know, I run a marketing analytics company, so I spend a lot of time with marketers. And I didn't realize the extent to which this had internalized with people. I thought people sort of knew that was the story, but knew that, of course, that's not actually how it works. But I realized, that, no, no, this is really how people believe creativity works. And so the book was you know, sort of came out of this frustration I had that I saw all these very smart people limiting their potential. And so the book is split into two halves. The first half of the book, I interviewed all of the living academics who study creativity, and I break down the myths around how creativity works using science and some of the real histories. Like I tell some of the real stories behind things like Paul Martin, Paul McCartney's creation song Yesterday, which has been overhyped and oversold for decades. Mozart, which there was a whole bunch of um, literally things like forged letters and forged articles about Mozart that have become part of our common myths around Mozart. And the second half of the book, I interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses. These are everyone from billionaires like David Rubenstein, Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, Nina Jacobson, former president of Walt Disney Motion Pictures. She's the producer of The Hunger Games. I interviewed even folks like Casey Neistat from YouTube and really eclectic set of creative geniuses with the goal with the goal of saying, okay, if the science shows us that you can actually learn to become more creative, well, then how have people actually done that? How have they accomplished that? And so the book is meant to both be a sort of myth-busting book, but also actually be a practical guide to actually leveraging this yourself. And I think there's actually a lot of misunderstanding or misuse of the word creativity anyway. Oh, uh, totally. I, I do think that a lot of people that I run into, I'm not creative, which means I can't paint like you know Picasso or something. When in fact, you know, in my business, I, I'm not like if you sent me down and say make something, I'm not a maker, but I can. I've built my entire career around taking other ideas and seeing how they fit together better, and I think that's a creative science. Oh, and totally. And this is one of the things that people, you know, we have sort of a, a book cover mentality to creativity, I like to call it, where, you know, I wrote a book, there's one name on the cover, but there's so many people involved who are creative who make that happen. I mean, there's agents, editors, marketers, copy editors, proofreaders, research assistants, feedback readers, right? Like every creative endeavor you see actually has a lot of different people involved. 
But we sort of have this book cover phenomenon or, you know, sometimes called the frontman phenomenon. Like, you know, in a band, we talk about the lead singer all the time, even though there's five people in the band. And with creativity, you know, we sort of talk about Steve Jobs and Elon Musk as if they're these sort of like Tony Stark-esque characters. And we forget the fact that Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, Elon Musk literally has like the world's best rocket scientist working for him. Like the idea that these people are rolling these boulders up a hill by themselves is just not true. And so I think we're surprisingly susceptible to these sort of like PR person propagated narratives around creativity. Um because I also think, John, I also think, John, we kind of like it. Like, we kind of like the idea that there's something out there for all of us that's going to be easy. You know, when we talk about our passion, I think we're slightly actually talking about, well, like, waiting for something to be easy. But, like, nothing in life is easy. You, know, you look at Mozart, and we talk about him as if he popped out of the womb playing the piano. But the reality is, when he was three years old, his dad, who's basically a helicopter dad, was like, you need to become a great musician. And under the conditional love of his father, he started taking lessons with literally the best music teachers in all of Europe. And he practiced three hours, seven days a week his entire childhood. So, like, this is not the story of it being easy for Mozart. This is the story of him doing the really hard part when he was young. And so I think we like this idea that for some people it's easier, for some things it's easy, because it kind of gives us an excuse. Well, and I also think that the, the narrative that is simple <laughs> is a really useful device, too, because people can then share it and uh, and they don't have to. You know, what you just went through, nobody wants to tell that story. Of course, 100 <laughs> percent. Everyone wants to believe it's just straightforward. Yeah. So you I, I think you go as far as saying that just about anybody with the right motivation and the right process could practice and develop a skill. So let, since I mentioned Picasso. Could I paint if I had the right motivation? I mean, right yes. now I will tell you I can't. You know, I don't yes. think I could paint anything that anybody would see commercially interesting. Totally. <laughs> right. So there's there's two different parts of you know creativity. There's the technical skill, and then there's creating the right idea at the right time. And so on the technical skill side, we actually have now decades of research on talent development. And what's amazing, this is something I didn't. I didn't expect it to be this much of a consensus when I started writing the book, but the people, the researchers who spend their time studying talent development have come to the conclusion that at best, natural born talent is like very rare and hopefully overblown, but more likely than not, the idea of natural born talent actually doesn't really exist. It's really that these people typically start very young, they have access to a lot of resources, or maybe they were working on another skill like the you know the daughter who always played baseball in the backyard with her dad and then by the time she was 12 and she went to her first ever track practice she was such a fast runner and they're like how did she learn this and it's like well she was playing baseball in the backyard for seven years um and in the book i actually profile the story it's actually one of the few stories we have of someone tracking their skill development over a long period of time it's this story of jonathan hardesty who's this painter at the age of 22, having never painted before, decided that he wanted to become a professional painter. And he proceeded to, for whatever reason, he was active on an online forum, and he created this forum thread which said that every day I'm going to post a picture of my painting. I'm going to paint every single day. And for the next 13 years, he did this. 13 years. And it's a really amazing story being able to see, like, he was such a terrible painter when he started. Like, I have... I got permission from him to use uh, one of his first ever sketches in the book and one of his sketches from much later. And um, it's like shocking. 
But what he did is he followed actually all of the best practices that we have from research on talent and skill development on becoming a great painter. And now he teaches all these courses and classes on becoming a fine art painter and all this stuff and just painting himself for five figures. And so he's a really great rare example of someone starting when they're old. And I think it's hard because when you're older, you're busy, you don't have that much time and there's not like a father or mother figure sort of bearing down on you, forcing you to get through the hard part. Well, and, and I do want to get to your four laws of the creative uh, curve, because I think that um, I think that's obviously it's a big part of the book. But I think it's also I think people need to hear that process. But I want to start with something before that. One of the things that I have observed in my own life and in, in watching a lot of other people is that motivation has a tremendous mm. amount to do with this. I, I, I'll give you an example. I taught myself how to play the guitar when I was in junior high. And it wasn't because I ever envisioned becoming a famous rock star. I saw it as a great – it turns out junior high girls love guitar players. <laughs> and that was a huge motivation for me to just – take this thing on and do it myself. And I, I think that that, uh, as silly as that example is, I think that that is, is probably the key to unlocking the whole thing, isn't it? So, I mean, this is one of the things that people sort of don't realize. I think the reason why we see so many young people who seem to be very creative is because their parents force them, right? right? That's right. powerful motivations. It's Freudian, it's developmental, whatever sort of psychological perspective you want to put on it. But over and over again, we see that the idea of a stage parent is actually plays a huge role in a lot of these young creatives' lives. And, um, you know, it's a lot easier to be world-class by the time you're 30 if you started when you were three than if you started when you were 25. Right, right, right. Yeah, I had to beg my parents to buy a used guitar, by the way. <laughs> All right, so let, let, let's talk about then the four laws because I, I, I do think that a lot of people, you know, there are definitely a lot of people that's kind of ironic, a lot of people that, uh, you know, are more left brain and they need a process to be creative. Um, and, and so I, and I really like, I mean, it makes total sense. So I'll, I'll, I'll actually, obviously, uh, you should pick up the bird, the book, I'm sorry, the creative curve and the bird and the bird, um, to, to get really in depth in this, but I'd like Alan to introduce his, his four laws. Yeah. So, um, so basically, you know, when we talk about creativity, there's two types of creativity. There's lowercase c creativity and there's uppercase c creativity. And this is how academics differentiate them. Lowercase c creativity is just like creating something new. Uppercase c creativity is what most of us actually want to do, which is creating something that's both new and valuable. And value is a subjective assessment, right? Creating something that we deem society to be valuable, well, people have to see it. They have to experience it. They have to deem it valuable. So there's a bit of a circular phenomenon that happens. And so... The back half of the book deals with this sort of uppercase C creativity. How do you actually get this? How do you actually develop the right idea at the right time? And it turns out that um, we actually have a lot of really good science about what drives human preference. And I explain it a lot more in detail in the book, but the short version is that we like ideas that are a blend of the familiar and the novel. They're not too um, unfamiliar to be scary because we're biologically worried to fear the unfamiliar because we worry it might you know kill us like if we went to a cave as a caveman that we've never been in before versus a cave we've been in many times but then we also turns out we like things that are novel because they represent potential sources of reward and you can think about when we were hunter gatherers why this was important so these two seemingly contradictory ideas our fear of the unfamiliar and our pursuit of the novelty lead to this really elegant 
relationship where we like ideas that are blend of the familiar and the novel, right? The first Star Wars, for example, was a Western in space. Um, right now, every every city has a bunch of these sushi burrito places popping up. They're just giant sushi rolls. They're familiar, but they're novel. And so you see that this is a huge driver of human behavior. And so the four laws really explain how do you nail this timing. And so the first law that I talk about is consumption. You know, we talk about how creatives are always doing they're very active there's that annoying social media meme you might have seen which is like 90 percent of people consume nine percent engage one percent create hashtag hustle and like it's not only stupid but it's also wrong because it actually turns out that since familiarity is such an important part of the creative process consumption so you know what's already out there is actually huge part of it. And so I talk about why and how, um, you know, Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, told me this wonderful story about how he started his career as a video store clerk who watched every single movie in the store. J.K. Rowling, um, when she was a kid, would close her bedroom door and just read book after book after book after book. Um, the second, I, I, think, I think the piece that maybe people are tripping up on is what I just heard you describe was intentional consumption. Mm. Exactly. So it's actually what's really interesting. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to go on Facebook and see all the blah, blah, blah. It, it, there, there's intent in what you're doing. Yes. And it's not just how much they consume, but it's exactly it's how they consume. And that goes in the second law, which is imitation. How these great creatives actually consume is in this way that's very interactive. And the best way you could summarize it is they're imitating it. And so I tell the story in the book about Ben Franklin and how you know we think of him as this great writer, but at the age 18, he viewed himself as a terrible writer, probably because his dad told him so, again, this parent thing. Yeah. And he decided that he was going to start imitating some of the structures of articles he loved in a magazine called The Spectator. And what you see is this sort of mad libification by these creative geniuses of other creative works where instead of just reading a novel, they'll outline, well, how is it structured? What's the story arc? Kurt Vonnegut for his master's thesis literally created these charts showing the different story arcs of great novels. And this is one of the foundational things for him as a storyteller. And so you see that it's not just that these great great creatives consume a lot, and they do, but they also do it in a way which is much more interactive than we typically do. And much more focused on imitation. So that's the second. Actually, a process that I've used for years in writing my books. Um, so I wrote a book called The Referral Engine, and so I'm, I'm looking for ideas on building community and referrals and you know different word of mouth things. And I'll read books that are unrelated to business uh, on math, on architecture, um, and it's amazing when you go into it with that filter. I'm looking for ideas that I can apply to you know community building and referrals. And it's amazing how the book is a whole different book. Uh, in that with oh, 100 percent. I mean, I obviously, if you ever want to feel a lot of pressure write a book on creating hits Um, it's a lot of pressure and um, or write a book on creativity and it's all this meta stuff to it and um, I mean for me it was like one of the things I as a first-time author was struggling with was like the best way to go to switch between chapters and it's just something I didn't have a natural knack for and so I went end up as I was writing the book using a lot of the methods in the book and so going and seeing some of the different ways that other people did it that helped give me the framework for realizing okay what are the different ways I can do it what do I like what do I not like how can I repurpose this in a way that fits my voice and my style versus if I just kept sitting there looking at it hoping an idea would hit me I'd still be here right thinking how to end my chapters all right, so I think we're up to number three, creative. Okay, number three. Um, yeah, so number three I talk about in the book is 
that you know we think of these creative geniuses as these solo actors, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you know, Oprah. But reality is, since there's this social construct element to creativity, since it's about what is valuable, you actually have to have a lot of different people involved. And I describe the different roles that you have to have in your creative communities. And there's four that I talk about in the book. And then the fourth and final law is all about data-driven iterations. So I think we have this notion of like, you know, the novelist who goes into the woods and writes their book in a writing cabin, and only once they write the end, period, do they come out. Um, but the reality is that since these the creatives who are the best at it realize that there's this whole social construct element, that the relationship with their audience is so important, that they are actually very focused on early and often getting feedback and then using that to iterate over and over again. And I talk about in the book, everything from the movie industry to romance writers to um, one of my favorite stories is I spent a day with the flavor team at Ben and Jerry's who creates new flavors. And you know that process, which is a culinary process, is like shockingly data-driven. Like they literally do surveys and all this fascinating stuff. And it's not super expensive what they're doing. They use a lot of email surveys, but it is data-driven. So I think that's one of the big mistakes that aspiring creators have is that oftentimes aspiring creators are creating for themselves and they're not creating for their audience. And the best creators are creating for their audience. And since they know that, they are much more likely to actually listen to their audience. Well, and it's interesting. Over the last decade, I think uh, the, the adoption of blogging, you know, wherever that is today, you know, 10 years ago, I think some, you know, there were a heck of a lot of authors that were iterating every day because they were writing content that eventually made it into a book. I know I've done that numerous times and I've seen a lot of other people that, that, you know, their blogs kind of blew up into books because of comments and feedback and, and the ability to say, Oh, that resonated. I, you know, I should, I should go deeper there. Um, and I, and I think that, I mean, there are plenty of examples of, you know, a lot of books that have became big hits, uh, started out as, you know, daily blogs. Oh, 100%. And you see this and they become, I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk's done a great job of this, right? Just sort of getting community feedback. Tim Ferriss, obviously. You see this a lot of times. You'll see these guys, they'll, um, even you know, journalists will write a, you know, a, an article for The New Yorker. It does really well. It goes viral. Then they'll sell the book and then they'll sort of work through that. And so, you know, you have the reality is that the best creative processes are like messy and gross and involve lots of shades of gray and all this stuff. And I think we have this romantic notion. You know, J.K. Rowling is a great example. I mean, the story about J.K. Rowling is she was on a train. She had the idea for Harry Potter. She started writing it on a napkin. First of all, she didn't have a napkin. She didn't have a pen. She was on a train. She had the idea for the character Harry Potter and some of his sidekicks. But then it took her five years to write the first book. Five years and in one interview, she actually showed the interviewer the box of all 15 different versions of chapter one she had written because she couldn't figure out how she wanted to start the book. 15 different versions. This is not the story of her waking up one day mm-hmm. with a multi-billion dollar idea. Yep. Yep. And, and then the process of selling that uh, book was just, yeah. just as messy. <laughs> totally. And I interviewed for the book her first agent and her first publisher – and I mean, like that book, like there was thought behind how to roll it out to the market. Like they were, they were very mindful of how to do it. Yeah. Well, and the rest is history, of course. But you're right. I, <laughs> I mean, I do think that we have a tendency in our culture, you know, the, the the social media YouTube culture, to to really kind of 
hold those ideas out there and think of the billions of other you know successes that we've never heard of that probably went through the same process. I mean, they were successful in a different way at a different level, um, but you know we we obviously all you know look at all of the the, the stories that hit the, the the one or two you know kind of social media viral hits. Totally. So tell me a little bit about how this research that you've done has shaped or evolved your own business track maven. Oh, I mean, it's super interesting. One, it's affected how I coach people. So, you know, I think I always had confidence that, you know, people were generally underselling themselves when it came to their own talents and development. But you're writing this book, which took me even further on the side that natural born talent doesn't really exist, has made me, I think, a much more practical but also much more aggressive coach to my team where I think I really push people hard to get rid of those things they've put on themselves. I mean, there's these famous studies that were done in the 90s where 86% of kindergartners tested at creative genius levels of creative potential, but I think it was like 16% of high school seniors, like something, something in the teens. Yeah. And it's like, and you totally see this. There's this entire like social set of, you know, constructs we put in ourselves, these social conditioning where we believe that we were meant to be X and we can't be Y. And it's so, 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 so much not real. It's just in our heads. It's what we've been told. Uh, it's the result of, you know, middle-class parents telling kids to get their safe job, to mm -hmm. be professional, like whatever it is. Uh, and I think it's really dangerous. And so for me as a, a manager and as a leader, I think I've, I've become much more aggressive about trying to coach people out of that. Yeah, and I, I think that times have changed a bit, but you know, a lot of a lot of high school kids, the creatives were the nerds. Uh, you know, yeah, and uh, of course now they're running the world, but, uh, <laughs> but but I think that I think that actually, you know, somebody who was really you know peer pressure stopped them from you know pursuing kind of an interest because of that. You know, I think that's the real shame in in not exactly. in not kind of bringing this out as hey, this is. This is the cool kids, you know, or whatever we want to call it now. So, so it's interesting as I heard you talk about that. Um, I wonder what the implications are just for hiring in general. So, I think I, I tend to very much focus hiring around potential. I tend not to be, and this is obviously as a young CEO. This is, I think, also you just tend to be, um, you tend to be a little more experience skeptical mm -hmm. because you also see the downsides of experience around people having their own cognitive biases around previous experience, and you know this worked before, so I'm going to do that again. So I tend to think I'm um, much more potential oriented. Um, the result is we have a lot of managers who are sort of battlefield promotions, so to speak, where, you know, they've they've grown up um, in the organization. And I think that makes them, you know, they know a lot of the context, they're, they're more loyal, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I think that's probably the biggest change for me as a as a as a leader is just really, yeah, being 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 willing to take up more risks on who I hire. Yeah, and I guess, I guess if you need, I mean, I think we need creativity out of every position. Uh, so I guess if you make that uh, a part of the process where you're going to, as you said, coach and, and teach a process of creativity or at least to bring out the creativity in everybody, um, then there, there isn't any reason to necessarily just say, oh, you have a creative background. Exactly. So I'll tell people where they can get the book and uh, find out more about Track Maven and everything else you're up to. Um, so you can check out the book at thecreativecurve.com and anywhere books are sold, check out trackmaven.com and alan.xyz for more on me. All right. Thanks, Alan, and uh, hopefully we'll run into you out there on the next day. Bye. Bye.